Hedonic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy DiStefano, and this is episode number three of the podcast. This is another solo episode, and I wanted to offer up a little more general subject matter for this one, as I know capoeira, which was the topic of the last episode, can seem like a pretty small niche of a topic, and I wanted to get some more broad subjects early in the mix, too. So today, I'm going to, again, tell my own story and give my own personal hot takes, this time about what drew me into learning about nutrition and how my perspectives on nutrition and health have grown and shifted over the years and what it was about my mindset that allowed for that growth and why that led me to get into health coaching and personal training. Now, obviously, I'm not a doctor or a dietitian or a researcher in the field. I don't have a PhD in anything other than the Dunning-Kruger effect. I've got a couple certifications in health and nutrition and my own N of one experimentation and coaching experience, and I just like to geek out on this stuff. So that's about the level of depth that I have to offer, but that doesn't mean it won't be useful, or at least hopefully thought-provoking or interesting. So with that intro out of the way, let's get into it. I've mentioned in previous episodes that I was typically overindulgent with food when I was a kid, and I mention that a lot because it's extremely common and becoming more and more so as childhood levels of obesity keep going up, along with every other demographic in our culture. And unfortunately, it does seem like there's maybe some correlation between being overweight during youth and adolescence and actually being more physiologically prone to storing body fat when you're older along with whatever psychological and social habits you have around food and your relationship with food. So really, anything that we can do to get the general public, especially kids, more up to speed on some good eating habits, ones that they can easily understand, see some value in, and actually make use of, the better. But I'll get more into that later. Point is, I grew up down the street from an ice cream shop, a donut shop, and a pharmacy slash convenience store that we'd go to for candy and pop and was appropriately called the drug store. And even though I was somewhat physically active, after all, we did have to at least walk to these places, I was still a little bit overweight. And it got worse when I broke my foot when I was about nine or 10 years old and I was in a cast for like almost a year. So I got really sedentary right around that age when your body is sort of laying down the foundation for the trajectory of where it should focus its energy. In my case, that was sitting around playing Sega Genesis or whatever video game system I had at the time. I think sometimes we just don't consider some of these lifestyle factors, these little things that can happen to any of us and play a huge role in the health outcomes that we have for the rest of our lives. I sort of leaned out a little more when I was in high school, but I think that was just, you know, more like what people would call skinny fat these days. Um, but once I got more into active stuff in my late teens and 20s, that slowly started to make me think a little bit more about my nutrition. Plus, I'd gotten into some stuff like yoga and meditation and just being more aware of my own mental state and noticing that food is another thing that affects how you feel. Like some cultures don't even have much of a distinction between food, drugs, and medicine. It's all just kind of one category. Like, and what you're eating impacts not just your physical state, but your mental and emotional state. And not just while you're eating at that moment, but also for the next couple hours, and then the next couple days, and overall, the length of your life, really. Because the food you eat 
shapes your body, and it's what your body is made up of. Like, I remember seeing this documentary when I was in my early 20s called King Corn. I'm sure you can still find it if you look for it. But it's all about how ubiquitous corn is in our lives. And one of the first things they show in this documentary is a hair analysis of the filmmakers and how it indicated that the carbon in their bodies was made up mostly from corn because corn isn't so much of what we consume along with wheat and soy, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. It really takes that whole like, you are what you eat saying to another level. So in my 20s, I got into a lot of stuff like that. And I remember Fast Food Nation was a real big eye-opener for me too. It was a great book. I think they made a weird attempt at a movie adaptation, but the book was all about how the fast food industry developed and how it started as an outgrowth of the interstate system, and how as it developed, there were all of these levels of corruption at pretty much all the links in the chains of production, from the confined agricultural operations where the beef and everything is produced, to the treatment of the fast food employees who are serving it to the consumers. So yeah, I was like, okay, let's move in the opposite direction of that. I wasn't eating a ton of fast food at the time, but after that book, I pretty much avoided it entirely. And I started doing my shopping at what was then called Wild Oats, and now it's called Whole Foods. I went mostly organic and stuff, and I figured that was pretty much, quote, eating healthy, unquote. I pretty much still ate good stuff, but I also kind of had this idea that, well, I'll indulge in whatever as long as it's organic and natural, man. And that was pretty much my eating approach through most of my 20s. That and eating at a lot of ethnic restaurants all the time. I think I would almost kind of assume that like ethnic restaurants are automatically healthier. But really any restaurant that you go to is going to be aiming to please the palate more than take into account what an appropriate energy balance is for you. I didn't follow any diet camps or anything. I knew about vegetarianism and veganism. And I'd vaguely heard about this paleo diet approach, which was still pretty far from mainstream at the time, and was kind of intrigued, but I was also like, yeah, right, I'm not going to give up all my grains. Uh, I was just kind of trying to be somewhat environmentally conscious and eat relatively clean-ish and organic mostly when I could. Then in 2011, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and health really came to the forefront of my consciousness a little bit more. I mean, we all say that lifestyle factors increase the risk of all of these chronic diseases, but it just keeps getting worse. Like, we know that lifestyle is the problem, but it's still just getting worse all the time. Why is that? And then you go to the store and you see all the food that's available, and you get on the internet or watch TV and hear about all these dietary philosophies with contradicting advice. Like, you have to cut out all the fat. No, you have to cut out all the carbs. No, you're eating too much protein. No, eggs are good. Uh, no, eggs are bad. Uh, cardio is good. No, cardio is bad. Uh, fasting is good. No, fasting is bad. And it's like, well, which one is right? Well, thankfully, and this is what's always saved me, I've always had a very agnostic mindset. Not just in terms of religious stuff, but as a general attitude towards everything. I think it's really important to keep in mind that everyone is wrong sometimes, and it's good to remember that. Just say it. I am wrong sometimes. 
And the thing about being wrong is that when you are wrong, you don't know it. Not until after you realize that you're wrong. And the more insistent you are on sticking to whatever conclusion that you've jumped to, the longer it's going to take you to correct your course. So it's probably a good idea to always keep in mind that you can be wrong about most things. Instead, I've always really tried to focus on making it a habit to look at things as maybes or probabilities and focus on how strong or weak the probabilities seem to you at the moment. After all, you do have to make choices in life um, and you have to feel somewhat confident enough in those choices to actually do something. But just keeping that, but I might be wrong caveat in the back of your mind, even with some of your stronger maybes, things that you're almost surely convinced of, and keeping your eyes open for new information and perspectives is going to make you a lot less susceptible to getting stuck in one way of thinking and pushing your perspective on everyone else. Of course, that's a little uncomfortable for most of us. Uncertainty makes us feel a little more uneasy, but getting more comfortable with that mindset is something you can get better at. It's something that you can train. My favorite author through most of my teens and 20s was this guy, Robert Anton Wilson, who I may have to do a whole episode about at some point. But he really communicated the value of this agnostic mindset in a lot of really awesome ways. So whenever I've gotten into some weird ideas and experiments with my nutrition, I did at least look at it very much like an intriguing experiment. One that made sense to me and I was glad to share with people, but not something I was 100% convinced of and forced on other people. At least I don't think. Sometimes I maybe came off that way to some people, but I'd try not to. And I would do that by qualifying everything I said with things like, from what I've read, this or that, or say, you know, I would say, it seems to me based on, you know, so thankfully I had that kind of mindset. And the first dietary strangeness that I really experimented with was this thing hilariously called the bulletproof diet. I first heard about this bulletproof stuff on an internet forum, not a nutrition one, just some nerdy music record label forum, his Trace Bruance's Web of Mimicry forum, if you're wondering. And someone had mentioned this bulletproof coffee thing. I wasn't even a coffee drinker at the time. If anything, I would have just assumed that coffee is an unhealthy thing because it's got caffeine, which is addictive, and I assumed it was probably just bad for your heart because it makes your heart speed up a little bit. Um, but I had heard about this bulletproof thing and read some articles about how actually tons of studies show all these correlations of positive health associations with coffee and then, of course, you know, Dave Asprey, the Bulletproof guy, he's the one who founded this whole Bulletproof thing, uh, using his marketing genius, he makes this case that all of the negative things we associate with coffee are because they have mold. Uh, all these coffee beans have mold. Uh, although he would use the more sciency sounding word, mycotoxins. Because, you know, sciency sounding words make us feel like we're getting the inside scoop. Uh, and all the other sheeple are just ignorant of it. Uh, so, of course, he sold his own coffee that was supposedly the most mycotoxin-free coffee in the world. Uh, really, it wasn't bad coffee, but nothing magical about it. And it wasn't even overpriced or anything compared to typical, you know, single-quality, you know, good coffee beans. But he tried to make this case that, like, blending it with butter and MCT oil 
which he also sold the patented mycotoxin-free version of, and which I now consider to be like the high fructose corn syrup of fats, would give you this the you know amazing energy boost to get you through the day, as long as you didn't ruin it by eating any carbs or protein. Uh, he also attributed all kinds of magical brain-boosting and health-boosting properties to this, but I'm not going to get into that too much. Uh, but it wasn't just the coffee. He had this whole bulletproof diet and other bulletproof, quote, biohacks uh, that, you know, that word's kind of silly. But the diet was actually pretty similar to, you know, the paleo stuff that I'd heard about. And I was already kind of intrigued by that. Uh, but he also added all this sciencey jargon around it uh, and, you know, used a bunch of cherry-picked studies to promote it. So it sounded reasonable and worthwhile. So I gave it a shot. And it actually did do a lot of good things for me. Uh, he had this roadmap, you know, that he called to his diet uh, of things that were like, you know, green light foods, foods that you might want to be suspicious of, and red light foods. Now, this roadmap had a lot of bullshit in it uh, because a lot of the criteria that of what made a food good or bad were based on a lot of questionable or just plain wrong things. Mostly this idea that carbs are dangerous and gluten was definitely in the red zone for everyone, regardless of whether they have celiac or any kind of sensitivity or anything like that. But some good aspects were that veggies were, the, for the most part, highly encouraged and it ended up with me trying a ton of new veggies that I wasn't familiar with. Like, I don't think I'd ever shopped at, you know, the store for things like fennel bulb or bok choy, you know, other random veggies that most people don't really include in their diet in our culture. Um, and it also really emphasized protein quality. So I got really into the whole grass-fed, pasture-raised, wild-caught protein sources which is all stuff I easily adopted based on the environmental stuff I'd you know been reading about in my 20s. And I started getting beef from a local rancher. All that is really great stuff. Um, of course, I probably took it a little too far. Uh, not like orthorexia or anything, but I was maybe unnecessarily restrictive where I would, I would avoid anything that wasn't organic or pasture-raised or whatever. Uh, partially because of the environmental sustainability stuff, but also when I do an experiment, I try to adhere to the protocols that the experiment lays out and give the whole thing a fair chance. And hey, maybe it'll give me that extra boost in energy or mood um, or add a few years to my life. Or maybe I'll just be feeling healthier for those last few years that I'm around. So I stuck with it for a couple years actually. Uh, I never did gain any magical powers, of course, but I did enjoy it at the time, and it didn't seem to hurt me, although maybe added a little bit more of, you know, social awkwardness to my life than I needed. Um, but thankfully, you know, the bulletproof thing, it did sort of have its own fail-safe, which is that they're really big on quantifying everything, including actually testing your blood and seeing how things are going. And there are companies online where you can order blood tests, so I started to get my blood tested, and everything seemed like it was going pretty good, except for the one questionable thing was my cholesterol. Now, cholesterol seems to be a bit of a contentious issue, but it seems kind of like the climate change debate, where most of the scientists and experts are saying one thing, and you have a whole bunch of people in the middle 
that maybe question that a little bit or they think that there's a little bit more nuance. And then you have some people on the other extreme end of the spectrum that are almost to the point of like conspiracy theory. But the bulletproof take was, and you'll still hear this a lot in some of the low carb, high fat ketogenic circles, uh, that hey, high cholesterol is great. As long as your HDL cholesterol is high and your triglycerides are low, who cares if your, your bad LDL cholesterol is high? As long as you're eating enough grass-fed butter, it'll be all good. It's just, it'll just be the large LDL particles, and those don't cause heart disease. Now, of course, this is getting a bit in the weeds, and this idea is still debated a bit out there in the nutrition world. Um, you can check out Sigma Nutrition Radio uh, if you want to get more into that. Danny Lennon, the guy who from Sigma Nutrition, he did a really good episode about that and has some really good articles about it. Um, but the general consensus is still that high LDL cholesterol is associated with some risk. And even this blood testing company I went through, even though I think Dave Asprey, the bulletproof guy, has helped fund them or is somehow associated with them, uh, they still show your blood test results and base them on the ranges that are in line with the consensus. So I'd see my total cholesterol and my LDL in this high risk range, like way up there. But I would just keep doing what, I'm, what I was doing because well, everything else is good and I feel good and there's this narrative of having high HDL and low triglycerides and low markers of inflammation trumping the whole high LDL thing. So, uh, you know, still though, I was like, you know, seeing that high risk was in the back of my mind and I'd hear even people in that paleo low carb sphere like Chris Kresser, you know, one of the most popular paleo advocates out there admitting that, well, actually if your LDL is staying super high, it's probably a sign that something is off. Meanwhile, I was doubting more and more a lot of these ideas behind the bulletproof stuff like his take on exercise, which I'll go into in an up upcoming episode. But, you know, ironically, it was one of the guys in the Bulletproof forums, one of the moderators actually, who was sharing a lot of inf interesting information that kind of showed some of the evidence against the Bulletproof dogmas. And he was referencing some of these other sports science communicators like Mike Isretel, and that broadened my perspective a whole bunch. So I started making small changes here and there. Like, what if I ate a little bit less butter and a little bit more avocado? What if I switched from these bulletproof exercise recommendations of super low volume and super high intensity, super slow lifting with an actual decent beginner barbell strength training program? Probably the biggest shift though was deciding to actually track my calories. I think this idea that calories don't matter is probably the worst diet myth to take over the internet and it's probably causing some of the worst problems and the most confusion for people who are trying to improve their health. Just about all of these little diet tribes seem to downplay the importance of caloric intake and output, also known as energy balance, and insist that health and body composition are just a matter of avoiding some off-limits evil food or having some magical superfood because they think this will manipulate their hormones or whatever, and those are the driving cause of everything. Bulletproof was especially bad about this. 
Dave Asprey would brag about eating 4,000 calories a day and not exercising just to prove that calories don't matter. Never mind the hormone replacement therapy and who knows what else he was taking. And there was this idea that if you just eat enough butter that it will boost your metabolism and you'll just naturally get shredded without ever feeling hungry. Of course, other diet camps have their own equally wrong takes. Like if you just eliminate meat, or if you just eliminate gluten, or if you just eliminate lectins, or whatever it is, and that it has nothing to do with calories. But even though the bulletproof approach was very anti-calorie, it was still huge on quantifying and tracking things. So instead of tracking calories, it was all about making sure you you know, track the grams of carbohydrates that you're eating. So sometimes I'd track stuff on my fitness pal or whatever, but not even pay attention to the calories. But thankfully, I again, I had that agnostic mindset and I was exposed to some more information that got me thinking, hey, maybe my priorities are a little off and I experimented with some calorie manipulation. I did an intentional fat loss phase where I lowered my calories, especially the fats, and I increased my carbs, and lo and behold, I lost weight at pretty much the rate that the calorie counting would have predicted. So that really changed the script for me quite a bit. Because if you remember, I kind of dove into this with the question of, why is it that so much of our lifestyle causes all of these chronic health problems? And the bulletproof paleo low carb approach was offering this one specific hormone, insulin, as their primary driver of so many things like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, etc. So it paints this picture that like, oh, it's so simple. If we could just get everyone to stop eating carbs and eat more Kerrygold butter, that everyone would just be so much healthier. But if you read any of the research, it turns out that's not the case. And if you stick your head up and look around, you realize, oh, all of these diet camps have their boogeyman, whether it's carbs are evil, meat is evil, and now there's even these carnivore people saying that everything but meat is evil. So who's right? What's the real cause for all of this? Well, I'll tell you my current perspective on who the boogeyman seems to be. Notice how I said that. I didn't say the word is. That's another one of these tricks that I got from reading Robert Anton Wilson back in the day. He really emphasized this idea that he got from a linguist named Korzybski called E-prime which is just English without is. So the basic idea is that you try to replace the word is with the phrase seems to me as much as you can. But anyways, at this point in time, the boogeyman making America fat and sick and killing us all seems to be nuanced and multifaceted. It seems to be a combination of biological psychological and social drivers in an environment that is conducive to these problems. But if I could boil it all down, I'd say it's mainly having a lot of tasty, calorie-dense food that is easily available, along with a brain and a body that has adapted over the course of its evolution to seek out the tastiest and most calorie-dense food it can and store it as well as it can to get through periods of famine. More refined food processing means tastier food, and part of that tastiness is your brain seeking out more calories, basically, and more calorie density 
usually goes hand in hand with less micronutrients. So there's no real grand conspiracy needed there. It's an outgrowth of an economic system driven by financial profit because the companies making the tastiest foods are gonna make the most money. They aren't gonna be incentivized based on who's making the healthiest food. It's who's making the food that is the cheapest to produce and is the most habit forming. So people eat this tasty food and that pleasure they get from the food becomes their new baseline. But they want that pleasure that they had from eating the food that was just above their baseline. So they eat more food, tastier food. And that's where this whole hedonic staircase idea applies. You just keep needing more and more to get the same enjoyment. Combine that with being more sedentary, which has been shown to paradoxically mess with your hunger signals to make you want to eat more. And being more stressed, whether it's financial stress or whatever other life stresses that we have in our culture, and horrible sleep, all being tied into that, it's just a recipe for shitty health outcomes. Turns out, most of those diet camps with all of their boogeymen have one thing in common. They eliminate a food of some sort and it causes weight loss. And it turns out when people lose body fat, even if it's on the shittiest of shitty diets, they see a bunch of health markers improve. That is how they account for all of their short-term success stories. But the lack of long-term weight loss is because over the longer term, those little hacks of eliminating this food group or that food group aren't really that sustainable. Sure, you cut out all the meat and the fat that comes with it, or you cut out all the carbs and lose a ton of weight, most of which was water and glycogen, and you keep it off for a few months, but then a few months after that, you'll have found all of the keto cupcakes and the keto Twinkies, or just douse yourself in so much bacon and avocados, or just jumped ship entirely and binged on pizza, and boom, you're back to where you started. So with all of that in mind, I kind of went through a process of figuring out which of the various ways that I was basing my food choices on that could be either done away with or at least eased up on and focus more on the things that I include rather than focusing on what I'm going to restrict. Like nowadays, I feel pretty lucky to be able to include more foraged wild plants and fungi and more veggies from my garden and the farmer's market. And I try to get more of that stuff into my diet, but that doesn't mean that I like try to restrict things and that I don't still get most of my food from the grocery store. Um, and really the bulletproof thing, that was pretty similar to a lot of elimination diets. So it was a bit of an interesting learning process of going through and like, okay, let's add some nightshades back in. Let's add some more grains back in. Maybe even add some gluten in there and see how it actually affects me. And since then, I've done some other dietary experiments, uh, mostly because I find them interesting and I have too much time on my hands probably. But I enjoy the process of dialing things in and experimenting, which is more complex than what most people need, but it can be a source of enjoyment for me uh, and a lot of other people too. So if you like complexity, it's not a bad thing, but not everybody needs that. So a lot of the nutrition stuff that I geek out on nowadays it mostly comes from like exercise scientists and, and coaches and things like that. Um, I tend to gravitate to sources who fit three different criteria. The first thing is 
They demonstrate that they're passionate about improving themselves by pushing themselves physically somehow. They don't have to be world champions of a sport or anything like that. That's more of a genetic thing anyways. But people who clearly care about their own progress and are actually doing things. You know, like, that was one thing that I was kind of didn't sit right with me about the bulletproof thing was that, you know, Dave Asprey, you know, it was originally called the bulletproof executive. You know, he wasn't talking to athletes and stuff like that quite so much. Um, but the second thing would be that they have to have some kind of credentials or at least be knowledgeable enough to demonstrate that they are familiar with the research. And then the third thing is people who have coached or trained a lot of other people with great success. You know, they've proven time and time again that their methods work. I try to learn from a lot of different sources and I try to take it all with various amounts of grains of salt and know that at the end of the day, it's mostly nitpicking, but I find it all entertaining, enjoyable, and motivating, and sometimes even useful. So it's been about four or five years now since I've, you know, left the whole bulletproof thing and really been immersing myself more into the evidence-based realm of nutrition and training and things like that. And you can imagine over these years, I've always been glad to share the stuff that I'm learning. And I realize I've geeked out on this stuff at a level that most people don't want or should ever feel like they have to. So when I'd be sitting around and thinking about how to make sense out of my life and how can I get more value out of my interests and how can I put my energy into a career where I feel like I'm offering up the most valuable contribution that I can, it made sense to me to try to take all the things that I've learned from my experiments and geeking out on nutrition and training along with all the other lifestyle things that I've picked up along the way and the sort of patience and understanding that I developed spending 11 years working with people who have developmental disabilities and just do what I can to help anyone move the needle of their compass in a little healthier direction and try to make that as enjoyable of a process as possible. So health coaching and personal training seems like the way to go. And while those seem like they might, be kind of oversaturated markets right now, I think they're still growing a lot because it's becoming more and more apparent that most of our problems are lifestyle-based. And that's not just a matter of telling people, here are some rules, follow these basic rules, but helping people dial in some sustainable habits that work for them as individuals. Because if there's one thing that all successful dietary changes have over the long term, is that people can actually adhere to them, meaning they can integrate it into their life in a way that they like enough that it isn't some added burden that they carry around with them every day. And that's why I gravitated to Precision Nutrition, because not only do they put out some really informative and well-produced content, but they're the first ones I've heard acknowledge this idea of nutritional agnosticism and say, hey, we don't care what diet tribe you come from, or if you're totally new to learning about nutrition, or even if you're an expert already. There are some fundamental habits and principles that we can all benefit from. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with my nutrition these days. I realize I didn't go into exact foods that I like or don't like or anything like that, but I guess if you want to see that, you can go to my Instagram. I do occasionally post some food pictures on there. But if any of this resonated with you, or if you feel like, hey, 
Maybe I just need some long-term foundational habits to build a sustainable approach to nutrition that I actually enjoy. Or hey, even if you just have simpler goals of wanting to lose a few pounds or gain a little bit of muscle, I do offer online coaching. And the way my coaching process works is that I use an app called ProCoach that uses this curriculum from Precision Nutrition. And for two weeks at a time, you work on habits. And this is usually a longer program, depending on your goals, but each of the habits is supported by lessons and some exercises that facilitate the process, which makes it really convenient and a great way for me to support and give feedback and clarification, offer suggestions, answer questions, etc. It really takes you out of the mindset of, you know, just give me a couple quick rules and I'll do it. Because again, the process that I do here acknowledges that there's the biological, the psychological, the social, and the environmental aspects that go into everything that we're doing. And there really isn't just one weird trick. Anyways, if you're intrigued and you'd like to give it a shot, you can head over to hedonichealth.com and you can learn more. Or you can just shoot me an email at hedonichealth at gmail.com. And I'm always glad to do like a free consultation and just kind of see where your goals are. And from there, we can, you know, give it a try and see if it works for you. And that about wraps it up. Thanks a bunch to all of you for listening. Again, you can get all of my info at hedonichealth.com or you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, requests for future topics, let me know. I think the next episode I'll be covering my adventures in lifting weights, but we'll probably start lining up some guests pretty soon here. Now, go have an awesome day, eat an appropriate amount of food for your goals, and make sure to get some veggies and some lean protein. Ciao!